One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When getting my nose in a book cured most things short of school, it was worth ruining my eyes to know I could still keep cool and deal out the old right hook to dirty dogs twice my size. Later, with inch-thick specks, evil was just my lark. Me and my cloak and fangs had ripping times in the dark. The women I clubbed with sex. I broke them up like meringues. Don't read much now. The dude who lets the girl down before the hero arrives, the chap who's yellow and keeps the store, seem far too familiar. Get stewed. Books are a load of crap. <laughs> Thank you, Philip, our motivational speaker for the day. He was, uh, he was only 12 when he... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, thank you, everybody. Thanks very much for coming. Welcome to Backlisted. Yes. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. You join us once again at the, in the storm-lashed boot camp for middle-class self-development that is the Port <laughs> Elliot Festival. <laughs> our bodies may be damp... Our tent poles may be, may be sagging, but the spirit and imagination is soaring. I'm John Mitchinson. I'm the publisher of Unbound, the website that crowdfunds the books that readers really want to read. And... I'm Andy Miller. I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. I've been here for 48 hours now here at Port Elliot. I have been bitten by more insects in that time. <laughs> so me and the insects, we were working an act up for next year, so come back and see that. A live biting. So I've been enjoying that at the festival. Uh, I'll tell you what else. Did anybody go and see Ben Moore's show? Wasn't it great? So Ben Moore, who was our guest yesterday, he did a show which is basically a deconstruction of dismal author talks at rainy literary festivals. <laughs> he had the cake and he ate the cake. <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant. I also saw Peter Asher from Peter and Gordon. Did anyone see that? You know when at the end, when him and his helper did World Without Love by Peter and Gordon, did you all sing along? Yes. I, I was really singing along. I, was, I, I started to cry. And I looked <laughs> up the row next to me. Please lock me away. I looked up the row next to me. There were, like, literally every pensioner in the row was weeping. <laughs> tears rolling down their cheeks. It was brilliant. <laughs> what have you seen? I saw a very good Me Too talk yesterday. Outstanding moment when Helen Pankhurst, the great-granddaughter of Sylvia, at one point said to everybody, you should all vote, and then looked up to the sky saying, I'm just doing your job, which I thought was a, very, it was a rather wow. moving moment. Um, it was a very good and very kind of terrifying talk, actually. They asked all the women in the room whether they would prefer to be 16 when they were 16 or 16 now, and all, almost no women in the room wanted to be 16 now, which says something. Let's I keep the that. mood upbeat. Oh. <laughs> Keeping the mood upbeat, I, I, had a, I had a riotous time listening to James Endicott's DJ set oh, uh, last night, which was, yeah. which was unimpeccable. Yeah. Unimpeccable. 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 So it wasn't very this, good. It was this is being Im recorded. Impeccable, impeccable. yeah. <laughs> Unimprovable, I think oh, I was okay, trying yeah, to say. Yeah, well. Every track a winner, a banger. And I ended up a sweaty mess at the end of it, but that was, that was a joyous end to the day, Andy. Well, let me introduce our uh, unimpeccable guests. Um, on my left, Nina Stibby. Round of applause, please, for Nina. 
Uh, Nina Stibby is the author of the memoir Love Nina and novels Man at the Helm and Paradise Lodge. She's a local author. And also, it's taken me... I've wanted to have Nina as a guest on Batlisted for two and a half... No, three years, ever three since years. we started. And it's taken me three years yeah. to persuade her to do it, right? So I'm totally delighted she's here. Yeah. So, well, you're gonna, but but you know. you, you've talked about what you've seen, and I want to say a thing yeah. I've seen today. Because I, there's a thing that tomorrow, and I think it's at 10.45... It's the tarot reading interview. If you, if, if you go, please go and see this tarot reading interview with uh, these two secular tarot readers and Lucy Mangan. It will be brilliant. I've just done one this morning and I noticed none of you went to see it. But it, it, who saw it? Wasn't it great? It was really, it was really wonderful. So go to that. That's Fiona Lensfeld. Le, who... Fiona Lensfeld and Jen something. Yeah. Sorry, Jen. <laughs> Jen something. Yeah. And Jen who? Jed Towney. Cowley. Jed, oh, whatever. Cowley. <laughs> but uh, and they, they perform as Lit Witcher, don't they? Yes. Lit Witcher, yes. Yeah. And they're very good. They really bring the best out of the author. We'll, we'll try that. Please do. Um, and we're also joined by Simon Garfield. Simon Garfield, round of applause for Simon, please. Yay! Simon is a returning guest to Batlisted. He came on last year. His previous choice was William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade, which is a fantastic book and is, I can reveal, one of our most listened to episodes. Congratulations, Simon. Thank you very much. Uh, he is the author of 18 books of non-fiction, <laughs> including the bestseller Just My Type and On the Map. Um, but he's also the author, and I will be neglecting my duty <laughs> to Batlisted and to Port Elliot and to myself, Every time I speak to Simon, I am obliged to say he's also the author of one of my favourite books, really is one of my favourite books, my top five books, The Wrestling, yes. which Absolutely. is a book about British wrestling in the early 70s. Yeah. It is a magnificent it book. If you haven't read it, a soaring you should read it. So every time I interview or speak to Simon, I try and find a new question to ask him about the wrestling. Here's this year's. Yeah. Have you watched Glow on Netflix? Yes. <laughs> I've watched Glow. I've watched Glow. Um, and I began watching it for Mark Maron. Uh, obviously, the WTF podcast fame, um, who can act way better than I thought he, he, he might yeah. do. And But the William and are great and mm. nominated for all sorts of Emmys, so mm. definitely worth uh, watching that, yeah. Uh, how many people here have seen Glow? Yeah. Make that all of you by the next yeah, time I ask. Now, talking of Glow, can I just say that the... Talking of highlights as well, last night we went to see Dan Goffey. Did anyone else see him there? Not, not that many, a few, OK. Um, and it was fine. And Dan, if you don't know, was the drummer in Supergrass and uh, he, it's a guitar rack here, a bit like the sort of the clash meets the, the, the ruts or something. And it was full on. Last song, he goes back to the drums, which is his sort of natural home, and, a, and Brett uh, Anderson from Suede, who was here yesterday talking, comes on and does a version of Pumping On Your... Stereo. Stereo, thank you. And basically, it was... You realise the power of a superstar. It was extraordinary. Right. You know, so Dan, admittedly, a frontman now, but not born to be one. Brett Anderson, extraordinary thing. And you, you were just... We were there, and we were dancing a bit, and we were going open mouth, open mouth, like that, jaw-dropping jaw to the floor, cos he's still got it, and uh, amazing stuff. Hey, it can't all be book chat. Smoke Chesterfields. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. 
So the book that we're here to talk about today is uh, Girl in Winter by Philip Larkin, his second and final novel, which was published in 1947. I'm just going to take a show of hands. How many people in the tent have read A Girl in Winter by Philip Larkin? A few. I would say that is about 5% of the people gathered in the tent. How many people have read the poetry of Philip Larkin? I would say that's almost everybody in the tent. So this is very much on the marginal end of uh, Larkin's work. It's set during the Second World War. We will talk a little bit about the characters in it as we go along. But the first question I always ask on Batlisted, and this is going to Simon. Simon chose this book for us to talk about today. Where were you, Simon, when you first encountered this particular novel, A Girl in Winter? Uh, slightly embarrassing. This is my juvenilia. I was, uh, at, the uni- I was at the LSE, and um, I was working on a newspaper called The Beaver, which, uh, much to the... <laughs> thank you. Much to the hilarity of all Americans at the LSE. Um, but the great thing about... Uh, and I wanted to be a journalist and a... a you know, editor a bit, I suppose. And um, it's one of the things, unlike going to Oxbridge or uh, most universities, in fact, there was no English department, no history department at the LSE, which means that if you have those kind of journalistic ambitions, you go to the top because no one's, you're not competing with anyone. So uh, I, I basically wrote half the, the newspaper. One of the things I did, God alone knows, you know, I think maybe I was editor, and this is the only way that it could have got into the newspaper. I wrote a, a, a sort of lit career, awful thing, I imagine now, about university novels, and so it's David Lodge, you know, there's novels about university, not necessarily written there, um, and um, David Lodge and Jill, Philip Larkin, was one of those, which takes place in Oxford, and then naturally after that I felt I had to read A Girl in Winter. So long, long-winded, uh, but uh, actually a sort of happy ending, because along with lots of other things that I wrote, including a review of Dr. Feelgood and all sorts of stuff, which is now, it seems extraordinary. Um, you then enter for a, a Guardian Journalist uh, of the Year competition, and my essay on Philip Larkin and others won. So, extraordinary stuff. When was the last time you read your essay? Oh, God, no. It's, uh, it's locked away some, somewhere <laughs> in a file. I can't possibly... It's, I mean, lo- it's, it's you, got the 30-year rule on but it, you love the, but, And you, I, I assume that you may, have, you may have reread the novel to do this. Of course, yeah. And what had changed between the you who read it then and you reading it now? Uh, it was less romantic now. Uh, at the time, I kind of associated myself, I, oddly enough, with the, the female um, protagonist, Catherine, more than... Uh, her sort of love interest. Yeah. Um, and uh, now I just, you know, you obviously see it far, far more with a sort of critical eye. And obviously, I, I, oddly, I think, I read the novels in a way, the way uh, his career progressed. So I read the novels before the poetry, unlike, obviously, everyone else here. Yeah. So it, it was an odd thing. So I knew him as a novelist first. Nina... When did you first... I mean, we all... It's a hard question to ask, because Philip Larkin, in a sense, is one of our national poets, has become, for better or worse, one of our national poets. Can you remember when you first heard the name Philip Larkin? Well, Larkin first cropped up in a big way for me in 1987, sort of about February, when I, we were choosing our dissertations in, in my degree. And... Um, I'm going to read you it because it actually Philip Larkin cropping up in my life was in my letters back home when I was writing back from London. So, do you mind this? I love it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Divic, all choosing our dissertation, extended essay in brackets, subjects. 5,000 words on subject of choice, pretty much. I've decided to do Carson McCullough's author of Heart is Lonely Hunter, which I absolutely love when I read it a couple of years ago. I'll scroll down a bit. Stella's having trouble deciding between Althusser, I can't remember who it is even, yeah. a Marxist bloke, <laughs> and, and Philip Larkin. So there's dialogue. <laughs> Stella, I can't decide. Me, well, which do you like most? Stella, It's not about liking. It's about the likelihood of writing something interesting and engaging. Me. Okay, which is easiest? Stella Larkin. (laughs) She's pretty much decided on Larkin. It'll be a doddle. 
she'll just rehash some old essays from her A-level and say how much she likes him. <laughs> it's a long time till we have to hand them in, but the important thing is not just to leave them and blah, blah, blah. Stella has done a rough plan. The plan includes interviewing <laughs> Alan Bennett for extra kudos. <laughs> I stupidly mentioned that Alan Bennett had met Philip Larkin and I might have exaggerated it a bit. <laughs> Annoying. Alan Bennett will show me up by playing down the relationship, which is already quite nothingy. And Stella... <laughs> and Stella will show me up... Show, sorry, Stella will show me up by demonstrating she knows fuck all about Larkin, <laughs> all the true meanings of his poems, which, in my opinion, are the mardy ramblings of an oddball. <laughs> and she'll say some things like juncture, apropos, or calibre, or her other words. And AB will say to me afterwards, your friend Stella kept saying calibre. She pronounces it calibre. <laughs> so... <laughs> so that that's my friend Stella choosing to do Larkin for a dissertation. How many years ago was that? Was that 40 years ago? 30. 30, 30 all right. Was well, so a lot, yeah, 30 years ago, whatever. The Marty ramblings of an oddball. Yes, yeah, so, and I, I, I think, yeah, he's awful. So then, then when finally Andy forced me to do this <laughs> podcast, I texted my friend Stella, who I'm still friends with, and said, right, OK, I've got to go on this bloody podcast and talk about Larkin. What, 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 do you, what shall I say? And she said this. Not a looker. <laughs> Not a looker, but had two or three women on the go at any one time. <laughs> but didn't marry because he was a commitment phobe and didn't want to live with anyone like Kenneth Williams. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, you know, she meant like Kenneth Williams. I think she meant like for the same reasons that Kenneth Williams wouldn't want to live with anyone because of not using someone's toilet um, type thing. Best mates were Kingsley Amis, which says a lot. <laughs> Less popular after Andrew Motion Biog, casual racism and misogyny and grim banter, but normal for the period. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't nice. Shut up, Andy. <laughs> He wasn't nice, but preoccupied with death, pointlessness of trying to achieve anything in life, curmudgeon. Novels, Jill, thumb down emoji. Girl in winter, thumb up emoji. Yay! <laughs> I um, would like to uh, give Philip, the disembodied voice of Philip, uh, the right to reply to that... Uh, <laughs> Introducing his character in that manner. Uh, there's a poem called Days, which is a very short poem, which offsets all the stuff that we now know about uh, Philip Larkin that we didn't know at the time. I think we should just reset the balance by listening to this 30-second incredible poem. Days. What are days for? Days are where we live. They come, they wake us, time and time over. They are to be happy in. Where can we live but days? Ah, solving that question brings the priest and the doctor in their long coats running over the fields. Oh, it's it's like like a parody yeah. of Philip Larkin. Yeah. Yeah. Just a sort of, well, funny, if you were mentioning Alan Bennett, Alan Bennett, I don't know if anybody, anybody knows Alan Bennett's reading of Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. It's unquestionably Alan Bennett's Eeyore Eeyore. is Philip Larkin. Yeah. For me, a present for me. <laughs> Jonathan Rabin said about Larkin, he said, Larkin was, Larkin was Eeyore. He said, if you gave him uh, a, a, a burst balloon and an empty honeypot, he would know what to do with them. <laughs> and if you gave him a honeypot that was full of honey he would find a way of emptying it. <laughs> the, the pot was always entirely empty. This is the first mention in his letters of this novel that he's writing. I'll just read it because it's very Larkin. He writes in his early letters, there are two main correspondees, Jim Sutton, who is a school friend, and the letters, who's an, an aspiring painter, and Kingsley Amos. The letters to Jim Sutton 
are wonderful and revealing and human. The ones to Kingsley Amos are just horribly uh, arch and trying to be funny all the time and showing off it. But this is a letter to Jim, to Jim Sutton. Really, writing is very difficult. The news, which I don't want to hear, has started just too muffled for me to hear the words. My nether body in general is wrapped in a large rug, which seems to warn me not at all. Truly, this is the dead season. I'm casting vainly about for a title for my novel, referred to simply at present as Catherine, the name of the chief character, and think it will have something to do with winter. <laughs> I think of titles and tell them to people, and the people look at me as if I'd let off a fart. So I know the titles aren't very good. The latest is Kingdom of Winter. Would you buy a book called Kingdom of Winter? Or would you pass on to a shelf where the book's called Sons and Lovers, <laughs> Kangaroo, or The Rainbow? Yes, so would I. <laughs> Do not conclude from this that the novel is anywhere near finished. It is nert. <laughs> I doubt if I shall finish it this year. Slow but unsure is my motto. <laughs> we should pray see what the book is about. For uh, Do you want me for... to give you the Philip Larkin's blurb? Philip Larkin, this, was, this book was published in 1947, just four months after his first novel, Jill, was published. And clearly things just after the war were, you know, tight. So they said to Larkin, will you write your own blurb for your own book? Yeah. And um, this is what he... This is, what he, this so is his description he, of his novel, A Girl in Winter. He's had very bad publication history up to this point. A sort of vanity press called the Fortune Press brought out... Uh, his first collection of poems called The North Ship, which was written round about the same time as he was writing Girl in Winter. And they also bought Jill, and they, they sat on Jill and didn't bring it out, which caused him a lot of angst and grief. He was paid nothing, nothing at all, and got no royalties. One of the reasons... Uh, he then got a literary agent, uh, Peter Watt of AP Watt, who represented him for one book. And then after that, for some reason, he decided not to have an agent and just de dealt completely with the Society of Authors, put all his, all his work, all his contracts through the Society of Authors. And when he died, he left... There were two beneficiaries of his will. One was the Society of Authors and the other was the RSPCA because he loved animals. Anyway, here, is, here he is on the, the blurb for the book. He says to Alan Pringle, Dear Pringle, thank you for your letter and the news that the book is starting its long voyage towards publication. I've remembered a title I thought of uh, before I started to write it, A Girl in Winter which, though I believe I discarded it on the grounds of it sounding Mills and Booney, if you know what I mean. Does, does it conjure up a more precise image than the present one does? How does it strike you? Otherwise, I keep thinking of things like Frosty Answer, <laughs> <laughs> which are foolish but fun. Anyway, here's his suggestion for part of the blurb. A girl in winter centres on one day in the life of Catherine Lind, a day that, as it progresses, seems increasingly to sum up her present life, connect it with her past and predict her future. She is brought up against an almost forgotten episode that nevertheless shows how her actions then have influenced others permanently and are still playing their part in her own life. Both past and present force her to take stock of herself and the book's conclusions extend far beyond one girl and one winter's day. He said the plot was feeble. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nina and Simon, do you think the plot of this book is feeble? No, I don't, but I, I... I mean, a remarkable sort of addendum to that, I think, is that he was 22, I think, when he wrote that. So 20 when he wrote Jill, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and so he got nothing for... He got no advance for Jill. He got £30 advance for, from Faber uh, for, for um, A Girl in We Enter. Um, do I think it's feeble? No, I don't. I, I think it's, it's really fascinating now. Uh, one can't, however, read it without thinking about what came afterwards, what came you know, with the poetry, because it is, I think, someone called it diffused poetry, and I think that's what it is. The plot itself, I mean, there isn't very much there. It takes place within 12 hours, essentially. There's three parts, uh, and the second part is a big flashback. But the key to it is the fact that it's winter, part one and three, and then part two is summer. And it's a bit like, although it's much better than this, you know, the first poem you ever have to write at school is called Either Summer or Winter. Um, and uh, sort of that's what our writing does. I mean, there's a little bit which I can read, just three lines or something, where basically just sums up the, the sort of poetic nature of it. This, this is a poet writing, not a novelist, despite what he thought, I think, at the time. Um, this is just 
end of the first page, he goes, but through cuttings and along embankments ran the railway lines, and although they were empty, they, they led on northwards and southwards till they began to join, passing factories that had worked all night and the backs of houses where light showed round the curtains, reaching the cities where the snow was disregarded and which the frost could only besiege for a few days, comma, bitterly. Now, that's not poetry. It's Wits and Weddings as well, isn't it? Yeah. So, Nina, when you... Uh, I don't know if you'd read this book before, or how did you feel about it coming to it in 2018, um, given it's, like, marg it's marginalia? I hadn't, I hadn't read it before, and I, I, it, people said to me... I said to my mum, I'm reading this novel. She said, oh, it's very short. But actually, because it's so beautiful and it's so crafted, it isn't short because you have to read it quite slowly. I felt intimidated by Catherine because she's so subtle and good and thorough. I love the bit at the beginning in the library. Is that the beginning? Yeah. It conjures up this awful cold library and they won't even make a cup of tea. And, and, and it, she's just so good. It made me nostalgic for what libraries used to be like. Oh, then. well, the library no was open. No one would open. tell you to shush. Right, it was open. It was, the library yeah. was open and it had all this staff and it was open on Saturday. Yeah. And, and they, they looked after the book. I mean, that was incredible. That really shocked me because I remember mm. libraries being like that and that people would go in and spend hours looking at books and there'd be lots of women creeping around but it was Mr Anstey smoking and what he did something he smoke a pipe and then he puts yeah. his fag out in a, in a water, water, bowl yeah. of water yeah. Yeah. and then I mean this extraordinarily prescient thing really because he didn't have any ambitions to be a, a librarian and and a sort of you know a, 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 an Eeyore-ish librarian at all and he's basically described in Mr Anstey uh, the, the, the person he, he sort he became. of became, or at least but his did, reputation. So, so is there literally no link between that librarian scene and... I mean, was he not already... I mean, I, I hadn't no. really thought about he, that. No. He, OK, he, he sort of... He was, he had a sort of junior job, I think, in uh, Ware Ellington, so he had long before moving to Hull. Um, but, yeah, he, worked, so. he worked in the Wellington, the Wellington College Library in Shropshire, yeah. which is where he is when he's writing this book. He, he left Oxford went back and moved back in with his parents in Warwick, in Warwick yeah. um, and then moved to... So he was living in a, in a sort of a, a really... a bedsit and freezing cold. Um, one of the unexpected things about the book is that when it was published in 1947, um, it was the coldest... I think yeah. it's still the coldest yeah. winter on yeah. record. So he writes a rather funny letter to the Faber Publicity Department and says, thank you for pulling off such a cosmic publicity <laughs> stunt to help my novel. Yeah. So Larkin became quite famous towards the end of his life. He was approached to become Poet Laureate in 1984. He famously turned down uh, the laureateship for two reasons. The first being that he didn't, in his own words, want to be a spokesman for poetry. And the second, that he was unable to write poetry, that he hadn't really written any verse of any significance for five years. Um, but in the 70s, he was quite well known. He'd become quite famous. And he appeared on Desert Island Discs in 1976. And I thought I would share uh, a couple of things with you. His luxury was a typewriter and paper with which to torture himself, presumably, by <laughs> staring at the blank pages. His book was the collected words of George Bernard Shaw, which he described as jolly. And he also, he's the record that he would have taken to his desert island. You can imagine Philip Larkin staring at a, a blank piece of paper, reading George Bernard Shaw to cheer himself up and listening to Bessie Smith's I'm Down in the Dumps. I've just popped outside the tent a moment and had uh, somebody spotted, a member of the audience has spotted what they think is the ghost of Philip Larkin, um, which is uh, handy. I can't see him, but it's handy anyway because it gives me a chance to, um, to inform you about our sponsor, the very lovely Spoke. Spoke, the sharp, smart online menswear company. Spoke designed men's trousers and now shorts and polo shirts for the difference. They fit you, not the other way around. With their online fit finder, just enter a few simple details and in under a minute you'll have the perfect fit. You can choose from almost 200 size combinations. 
spoke obsess over every detail of their clothing, the fabric, the lining, the fastenings. And ordering from Spoke is not like going to a tailor. It's no hassle, no expense. You get sharp, personalized design delivered in just two working days. And as a backlisted listener, if you go to www.spoke-london.com and place an order, you'll get 20 pounds off your first order. Just use the code BACKLISTED20. Terms and conditions apply. I shall now return you to the tent. Um, so I've, I've sent the, these guys this when I knew uh, we were talking about Philip Larkin. Um, I don't know whether you could... It's someone, and I, I wish I knew who it was, but kudos to them, um, mocked up uh, an album that uh, the Philip Larkin quintet uh, may have, um, um, re- may have uh, written and performed on, and it's called Moaning About Everyone. <laughs> and the quintet, apart from... Larkin consists of John Wayne, Kingsley Amis, Barbara Pym and John Betjeman. And the songs are, um, it says, swinging classics from the maestro of mournful, including Toad in My Lawnmower, <laughs> Complan and Gin, <laughs> Staff Meeting Rag, <laughs> They Jazz You Up, Your Mom and Dad, Dewey Decimal Lady, Love Again, in brackets, Horning at ten past three. <laughs> and the final track, which I'm sure lasts at least 12 minutes, is Can't Find the Gents. <laughs> All right, so I, I, uh, I read Jill when I was a student, so like 30 years ago, but I hadn't read A Girl in Winter. I've had this copy of A Girl in Winter since 1988, since July 1988, uh, exactly 30 years ago, and I know that because when I got it down off the shelf, I found the receipt in the back. Right, and I, I, I bought it from Books Etc. in Victoria Street in London. Books Etc. no longer with us. Um, and I bought another book on the same day, and I thought it was amusing to say what the other book was. So I bought a copy of uh, Philip Larkin's A Girl in Winter, which I didn't read, but also a copy of Joan Le Mesurier's Lady Don't Fall Backwards, an account of her affair with the comedian Tony Hancock when she was married to John Le Mesurier. Right? And what I thought, what links those two things is I realised that, that, that I love that type of personality in art or music or comedy. I really love that kind of Tony Hancock, Philip Larkin, Eeyore, Anita Bruckner, Stuart Lee, Jean Rhys, Morrissey, although that <laughs> one's been cancelled recently. <laughs> but nevertheless, and when I, so when I did read this book this time, I felt it was like coming home, really. I thought the sort of... It's so wonderfully gloomy and grim and kind of... I thought, great, I'm going to get to talk at Port Elliot about this miserable bedsit, wintry novel. I couldn't be any happier. The other thing that struck me about it, I don't know what you think about this, if I didn't know who this book was by, I would have sworn blind that the author was female. For a a writer who, that's fine, for a writer who is thought of as having a particularly male view of things, it really, the the authors it reminded me of were Barbara Pym, of course, but the novelist Elizabeth Taylor or Rosamund Lehman. Larkin as a neglected lady novelist, which is a term used for that group of writers, seemed really fascinating to me. It's too worthy. I I don't think a woman would write such a, she's, she's, She's just so subtle and good all the time. She doesn't do anything bad or wrong. Some people might think she's a bit harsh on old Robin. I mean, spoilers are hardly really what you're going to get with this book. Broadly, what happens, she falls in love with... She comes over as as an exchange student. She falls in love with the, frankly, rather dull English boy that, uh, that she's been billeted with. Uh, they don't see each other. She comes and starts working in England, works in a library, and then he, she gets in touch with the family, he gets in touch with her, he comes, they miss each other, she, he ends up waiting for her in the flat, and then they spend the night together, but not in a, not in a good way. Not in a good way. Yeah. No, Nina, do you want to...? She could say she was being a bit mean to Robin then. Mm-hmm. I the chose effort. the very end oh, yeah. uh, for my bit that Andy wanted 
you know, when he wanted us to choose a bit. Um, uh, <laughs> so. The cow lighter. Sorry, this Do is as gone, you're a, told, gone, Nina. gone a bit Brechtian. Sorry. Um, so, shall I read it? <laughs> yeah, please. Okay. So this is the very last bit, and I'm calling it the end of hope and the death of love. Uh, <laughs> and I, so. As, as John just said, they've they've met again after years, and 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 actually, the, the novel takes place over one day, but but Catherine is longing to see Robin, isn't she? She's longing to see him, and she thinks she might have missed him, and she worries about it. And then at some point, she decides she's not really bothered anymore. And I don't know at what point she decided that. It was so subtle, I missed it. But we're told that later. Anyway, so this is them after they've had love. They've had love. Yes. Do you think they have, have actually oh, done they've, they've it? Had, they've had yeah. So they've actually yeah. had love. They've had yeah. love and it's been dismal. Right, <laughs> so, well, there was, there was the snow and her watch ticking. So many snowflakes, so many seconds. As time passed, they seemed to mingle in their minds, heaping up into a vast shape that might be a burial mound or the cliff of an iceberg whose summit is out of sight. Into its shadow... Dreams crowded, full of conceptions and stirrings of cold, as if ice flows were moving down a lightless channel of water. They were going in orderly, slow procession, moving from darkness further into darkness, allowing no suggestion that their order should be broken or that one day, however many years distance, the darkness would begin to give place to light. Yet their passage was not saddening. Unsatisfied dreams rose and fell about them, crying out against their implacability, but in the end, glad that such order, such destiny existed. Against this knowledge, the heart, the will, and all that made for protest could at last sleep. <laughs> that was after they had... That lady's, yeah. that lady's face there is amazing, right? <laughs> Lizzie's. Yeah, boom, right? What a big yeah. ending. Yeah. yeah, oh, incredible. <laughs> But you can be sure she probably never had sex again after that yeah. because she was so it was it was so. <laughs> it's just an interesting point about like which I only found out about recently. You know, you mentioned Andy the uh, the idea of well, you know, w w odd that Larkin wrote something like this strong um, female protagonist. Mm -hmm. um, but he did write two earlier novels uh, under the assumed name of, and this is apparently true, uh, Brunette Coleman, which is uh, fantastic. <laughs> um, and uh, only released, uh, or, or escaped, maybe, uh, long, long after um, his last poetry uh, collection. Um, and they were... I'm not sure if they were Mills and Booney, but no, they were... No, they're sort of Mallory Towers schoolgirl That's adventures. Right. Yeah. That's right. So we obviously had this thing of writing as a woman, which is interesting. I mean, at the time, he very much thought of himself as a novelist. That's yeah. what he thought he was going to do. He writes about this book. The Kingdom of Winter is rather unimpressive. This is another letter to Jim Sutton, compared with Jill. But when you read it, you will see why. It is a deathly book. Um, we're really selling it well, aren't we? It is a deathly book and has for theme... The relinquishing of live response well, to that's life. That's what the bit that the, Nina just read is. Yeah. That's it, it's not. It's if I can, I feel I have to defend it. But a, no, no, it's beautifully written, and b, the, it's unflinching. It's looking so straight true. at that issue and yeah. and trying to communicate it as it, best he can. He goes on. The central character Catherine picks up where John from Jill left off and carries the story on into the frozen wastes, the kingdom of winter, to be exact. Now. I'm thinking of a third book in which the central character will pick up where Catherine left off and develop logically back to life again. In other words, the North ship will come back instead of being bogged up there in a glacier. And then I shall have finished this partial branch of soul history, my own, of course, and what will happen after that, I don't know. Well, we sort of do know. He says, this third book will need colossal strength and application. I doubt if I can do it yet. I think I have the elements, but the elements to make a book any more than a sack of malt and a bushel of hops and buckets of water and some jars of filthy chemicals make beer. But actually, I think what's happening is he's beginning to write... I mean, he's had the North Ship probably. He's beginning to publish poetry. And do you know who his favourite... Who his model for, for, for fiction was, his favourite novelist? This really surprised and quite shocked me. D.H. Fucking Lawrence. No. Yeah. He was all his letters to, to Jim Sutton are about how great Lawrence is and how wow. uh, what, what a deep and, and I mean I, I'm a huge Lawrence fan as you know, but it's it's very it's quite interesting. So all of that sort of pent up deep emotion in Larkin mm. that comes out in these in, 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 in the poetry is sort of mm. it's sort of there in this book. 
I, the two reasons for reading it, I would say. One is, it's, it's, as you say, unflinching, beautiful, precise. The story, I think, is actually rather, rather beautifully constructed. It is also, it has in it a scene of such horrific uh, vividness that anybody who's ever had anything done to their teeth will be thankful that we now have a national health service a, and we can get... It's a scene of orthodontic scene. horror. Horror. Worthy of marathon man. <laughs> you know, I'm going to excite the tent by reading a bit now. Uh, yes! <laughs> so, Catherine has had to take her colleague, uh, Miss Green, for an emergency dental operation. And the only dentist they can find is a seedy back, back street dentist who initially says... I won't give her an injection. I won't pull the tooth out. And then he goes, oh, all right, then. And he wheels her on like a gurney through to the... Not an injection. Oh, yeah, no. It's just... Oh, sorry, OK. He suddenly hooked the mask back onto the trolley and reached into the open mouth with forceps. Gripping the tooth horizontally, she felt an upsword of, of terror, lest the girl should still be half-conscious but unable to move or speak. Her head... Someone just went... <gasps> Her head stirred as he first pulled and he put his free hand on her forehead, rumpling her hair, before giving another dragging wrench in the other direction. Catherine could almost feel the pain exploding beneath the anaesthetic and nerved herself against a shriek. It seemed impossible for the girl to feel nothing. As the dentist levered and <laughs> wrenched again, the muscles in his wrist moved. And as he withdrew the forceps, she thought he had failed until she saw the long root in their grip, bright with blood. He dropped it in a silver casket, then tweaked out the wet and blood-stained roll of cotton wool and removed the rubber gag. It's all over, he said. Miss Green's eyes were open, expressionlessly. It's all over, he repeated. It's all right now. Slowly, her hands began unclasping. She sat up, slowly, grasping for the arms of the chair. Her mouth seemed to move in a reassuring smile or to speak, and a sudden thin stream of blood ran down her chin. Whoa. I'm unmoved. <laughs> I am. Look, I was a dental nurse for three years, and we did that was every week. And, and it's... I mean, you know, I, what's horrible about that scene for me is that they go to the bleak place, the equipment's so horrible and rusty, and then she requests gas and he won't give it. And then eventually he agrees to do it, even though he hasn't got enough staff to legally do it. And he takes her into another back room and it's dark. Mm. And it's that, that Catherine has sort of talked him into it. And I, So that's really... It's quite horrible around it, but actually, they, you know... I think what you can feel in that bit, though, I'm sorry, you know, I, it's quite a grisly bit of reading, but again, by the bit Nina read, the precision of the language yeah. is the precision of a poet, yeah. right? There's a, a clip here. I talked about Desert Island Discs earlier. This is a clip of Larkin talking about what he was trying to achieve in a poem. This is, like, in the mid-'70s. You try to create something in words that will reproduce in somebody else who's never met you and... Uh, perhaps isn't even living in the same cultural society as yourself, that somebody else will read and so get the experience that you had and, and that forced you to write the poem. It's a kind of preservation by recreation, if I can put it that way. I think that a poem should be understood at first reading, line by line, but I don't think it should be exhausted at first reading. I hope that what I write gives the reader something when they read it first, enough, in fact, to make them read it again, and so on ad infinitum. And I think you can hear that sensibility in the prose of this book. You know, the thing that distinguishes it in a way from other novelists uh, perhaps operating at that time is there is that constant mm. edging towards finding the right phrase, the right word... Larkin writes very little in his life. He has four volumes of poetry published, and they are slim. And he clearly had a morbid fear of publishing anything that was anything less than, as he saw it, perfect. And even when it was out there, he didn't think it was perfect. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I mean, you know, one shouldn't forget, along with all the... 
the sort of misery, there was a lot of humour, and the poems I think we like the most are, are the, the, the ones with a, um, a bite to them, a spark of, of humour in a way. And I just want to read one bit uh, where, early on actually in the book, where um, uh, Catherine is being reprimanded by her boss, Mr Anstey, who is an anagram of, um, well, sort of, almost an anagram of na- na- nasty. And he... It's the sort of person Larkin became, but I'm going to do it in a, in a sort of snidey kind of Pete and Dad voice, I think, because I think this is what it's like. He says, he says to her, um, I don't know what you are intending to do with your life, whether you are intending to follow this profession or not. I don't know, and frankly, I don't want to know, for that is a question that every person has a right to settle and to, de- to decide for him or herself. But I am telling you this, that if you decide, yes, I will follow this profession, I will devote my energy to the attainment of this... I don't know what I'm doing now, Charles Hawtrey or something. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Energy to the attainment of this career, you will find, he stressed the three words with his pipe, that an ounce of good business sense, such as you need to run any factory or business, that'll be worth all your Shakespeare and Dr Samuel Johnson and whatever you call. Of course, he changed his tone to one of indulgent explanation. I'm not saying anything so foolish as that knowledge is not of inestimable value, but what I am trying to explain is that once a year, a fellow may come in and say, oh, Mr Anstey, look here, I want to know all about Elizabethan drama or some obscure branch of phonology or morphology or whatever it is that you happen to be familiar with. Well, there you are then, out trots your education. But nine-tenths of the time, 99 hundredths of the time, you are simply having to fill the position of an ordinary office boss who happens to be dealing with books instead of houses or perambulators and so on and so forth. And it sort of characterises, I think, really, you know, sort of the, the, the archetypal, boring... Librarian, English, English provincial, provincial yeah. librarian. It's spot on, really. He was obsessed with wanting to make art out of the stuff that was his life, that was yeah. around him. Of, of you know all, all the famous stuff about re- rejecting the myth kitty. You know, yeah. he, he was making. There's a brilliant thing where he's writing to Charles Monteith at Faber, um, and he's writing about um, Barbara Pym, a novelist who's been turned down, rejected by Cape, and turned down by Faber. And it's it's one. He very rarely. Larkin kind of uh, sounds off sort of uh, to people other than his, his very close friends about what he really thinks about literature. But this is, a, this is, I think, his kind of credo as far as fiction is concerned. Personally, too, I feel it is a great shame if ordinary sane novels about ordinary sane people doing ordinary sane things can't find a publisher these days. This is the tradition of Jane Austen and Trollope, and I refuse to believe that no-one wants its successors today. Why should I have to choose between spy rubbish, science fiction rubbish, or dope-taking nervous breakdown rubbish? I like to read about people who've done nothing spectacular, who aren't beautiful or lucky, who try to behave well in the limited field of activity they command, but who can see in little autumnal moments of vision that the so-called big experiences of life are going to miss them. And I like to read about such things presented not with self-pity or despair or romanticism, but with realistic firmness and even humour that is in the fact what the critics would call the moral tone of the book. It seems to me that that kind of writing a responsible publisher ought to support. That's you, Charles. And if an introduction by me saying so would help you to review your verdict on the book, then I'd gladly provide it for nothing. In fact, I'd be honoured. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's last. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Let's have a <laughs> round of applause for that. So, um, so we're going to hear the hit now because we're near the end. Phil's going to line up for us, and what he's going to do is he's going to read us "This Be the Verse," uh, his most famous poem, one of the most loved poems in Britain in the 20th century. So, uh, take it away, Philip Larkin. This be the verse. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra, just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern 
and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Now, so listen, thanks very much, everyone. Thanks the disembodied voice of Philip Larkin for being such a good sport. Um, I absolutely love this book, Girl in Winter. I would yeah. really love if people felt inspired to go and read it or any of Larkin's work. Any last thoughts about Larkin as you return to him? I'm very thrilled to have gone back to him and I'm thrilled to have read this novel and I will now read Jill, which is... which thumbs you lot, down. You, thumbs down. Yes, well, <laughs> but you haven't given it the thumbs down, no. have you? Uh, it's no. a book about innocence. Really, but it's I in the wrong order. Isn't, isn't Jill the first working-class novel? Isn't it the first out, fish-out-of-water novel? Well, working-class at Oxford novel. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean, sort of yeah. fish-out-of-water and sort of seeing they've got their posh crockery. And, and so, do you yeah. think, Simon, do you think that Larkin could have, should have continued as a novelist? Or does this feel like the end of a novelistic No, I, th I think, yeah, it, it feels that... He, I mean, he clearly had a very hard time. He felt that he had a problem with plot. He had no problem at all with language and no problem at all with atmosphere and uh, sentiment and sort of expressing the kind of bittersweet side of life. So I think he, I think he chose well. I think, I think the verse served him well. And he wrote, he wrote, I mean, multiple drafts of this book. He worked very, very hard on it. When there was a, some wonderful correspondence with him and uh, Pringle at Favour about making changes, and he more or less says, "Look, I think I've, uh, I think I've got the book right now. Uh, it may not be a good book, but it's the book I wanted. It says the things I wanted to say." Okay, listen. Thank you very much, uh, John. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Philip Larkin. Uh, thank you, and Andy. thank you to this lovely audience at Port Elliot. I will be selling copies of the Port Elliot 2018 remix of this bit of verse <laughs> at the back of the tent when this is over. Do visit the website. All the clips that you heard will be on the website. Further reading, uh, background stuff, articles about Larkin. Thank you to all our guests and thank you to you. Thank you. choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.